Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Juan Carlos Hidalgo. I'm a policy analyst on Latin America at Cato Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Immigration reform has been one of the most controversial topics in the policy and political arenas in the last decade. And there is a good reason. The United States has a broken immigration system, and the results are painfully obvious to everyone. Over 11 million people reside illegally in the United States. Moreover, every year thousands of families are divided when parents are deported to their countries of origin while the US-born children remain in the country. Also, due to this system, some of the brightest minds in the world come to the United States due to US colleges every year, but have to return to their home countries after completing their degrees because they cannot get a green card to work here legally. The benefits of free immigration are enormous and have been well documented. According to Michael Clements of the Center for Global Development, who wrote a blurb for the back of this book, if all barriers to the free movement of people were removed, the estimated gains to the world economy will range between 50 to 150% of GDP. The idea of unhindered movement of people worldwide, while cherished by some libertarians like me, is politically unrealistic. But given that there are so many restrictions on immigration, even small reforms can have a significant economic impact. Despite the evident gains from immigration, both to immigrants and to their host country, the political climate in the United States doesn't seem favorable for immigration reform. Instead of discussing legalizing the status of undocumented immigrants or creating guest worker visa programs for low-skilled foreign labor, what we hear from the political trail is how big the wall with Mexico should be and how we should track immigrants as if they were FedEx packages. But we know that the best way to counteract myths and phobias, particularly in a topic such as, as controversial as immigration, is through facts and evidence. Today we'll hear from the editor and a contributor to the economics of immigration, market-based approaches, social science, and public policy. Their comments will be followed by an experienced social scientist who has been around the block on the immigration debate. By providing original research and analysis on topics such as immigrants, how immigrants affect the wages of American workers and government budgets, how they assimilate into American culture, and as well as proposals on visas, borders, and immigration levels, this book is one of the most comprehensive contributions to the immigration debate of late. Let me start by introducing the editor of the book and our first speaker, Benjamin Powell. He's the director of the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University and a visiting professor in the Rawls College of Business. He's the North American editor of the Review for Austrian Economics, past president of the Association of Private Enterprise Education, and a senior fellow with the Independent Institute. He earned his bachelor's degree in economics and finance from the University of Massachusetts at Lowell and his master's and PhD in economics from George Mason University. Professor Powell is the author and editor of several books and the author of more than 50 scholarly and policy studies on topics such as economic development, Austrian economics, and public choice. His popular writing has appeared in the Investor Business Daily, the Financial Times, the Christian Science Monitor, and many regional outlets. He's also a frequent guest on networks such as CNN, MSNBC, Showtime, CNBC, among others. Please help me welcome Benjamin Powell. Uh, 
All right, thank you, and, and thanks to Cato for hosting this, and Alex for uh, organizing and strong on me into coming here. It's uh, great to be here and see you all. So let me start by just saying a little bit about what this project was about overall. It's The idea was to bring together scholars on this to kind of state what the state of the art social science is on various impacts of immigration on the economy, and in particular the U.S. economy, and then have some other ones air their policy differences in the second half of the book. Because for about a decade now, I've been giving talks on immigration around the country, and what's striking to me is that the debate among social scientists about the impacts of immigration is just vastly different than what it is throughout uh, Capitol Hill or public radio across the country. Uh, the, the degree of difference among the scholars is like this compared to the degree of difference in the population like this. And the idea was not to show that all economists or social scientists agree about optimal immigration policy. It's to show what are the finer points they debate, and then in the second half, how would they differ in policy in light of that then maybe? And it's just vastly different than what we see in other parts of society. So what I'll do with my remarks today, I think, is uh, go through at first some of the economic impacts where the debates among scholars are just vastly different than the general populace. And then I'll end with where the big question for scholars, I think, is on terms of the impacts. And then Alex will fill in more about the, the fiscal impacts, which is an excellent chapter that he wrote for the book. So first, as was pointed out in the, in the introduction, the gains that economists predict from moving to a world of open borders are just jaw-droppingly staggering. So we're talking 50 to 150% of world GDP, doubling of GDP level, and it's staying doubled and continuing to grow from that level every year. This is just massive. If the economists are off by a lot, it's still massive. When we think about other problems associated with immigration that people worry about, be it crime, the educational system, whatever. Which of these problems can't be at least partially addressed or solved with double world GDP? That's just like a massive corrective to whatever objection it is to, most, to almost all of the objections, and I'll come back to the one that I think might be an exception to this later, whatever other objections you might have. So that alone, I don't think the population in general appreciates how big these gains could be, and it's because what Julian Simon, of course, referred to as the ultimate resource, human ingenuity, a lot of it's trapped in places with lousy institutions, not much respect for economic freedom, bad rule of law, bad property rights, so it's not made use of effectively. If you take them out of the poor environment, all of a sudden their human capital becomes more valuable. It's what we call the place premium in immigration economics. Take a Haitian out of Haiti, drop them in the United States, overnight average earnings go up 1,000%. Ditto for Nigeria. For a Mexican, it's about 150%. This is just putting that human capital that's really going to, you know, not being made very good use of in poorer parts of the world, and all of a sudden mobilizing it. That's where these big gains come from, and I think this is just vastly underappreciated by most Americans. Now, when it comes to their objections, usually, I mean, you, you get kind of the, the Lou Dobbs trio of they're going to impoverish our economy, they're going to steal our jobs, that's also the South Park one, and they're going to depress our wages. So first, for the U.S. economy, the economists who are critical of immigration agree that existing immigration, both illegal and uh, legal combined, are a net benefit to native-born Americans. So not just to the economy that includes the gains to those immigrants, which are big, but to the native-born as well. It, but it's small, modest as a percent of GDP. Take George Borhaus, who's probably the most prominent economist critical of greater immigration, and use his standard method for estimating and update it for current levels of immigration. It's around $40 billion per year to the, the native-born citizens in the U.S. economy that immigrants earn add to it. So as a you know, $15 trillion or so economy, 
40 billion is kind of small, but note, this is the debate among economists. The guy who's critical says the net economic gains are positive, but then we'll say, but they're relatively modest, so if we just got rid of it because I care about other things, well, we wouldn't lose that much. This is much different than Lou Dobbs telling everybody, they're going to make us a third world country. No, this isn't the debate among responsible social scientists. So what about jobs? They steal our jobs. This is the most popular one, probably. It's a classic case, I think, of what Bastiat called the seen and the unseen. When an immigrant comes in and displaces a native-born worker, there's a, you can stick a camera on the native-born worker. This guy can say, I used to do landscaping. Now, look, it's all people from another country who are doing landscaping here. You can see the guy who is displaced. But immigration both creates and destroys jobs. So it took that person's job, but immigrants also demand goods and services, which creates needs for other jobs. And it frees American labor to do what's in its comparative advantage. Note I just used the economic catchphrase, comparative advantage. And that's because the case for free trade in labor isn't fundamentally different than the ones for, for trade in goods and services. Uh, it's still based on comparative advantage and freeing the labor up to do what it is best suited to do, given the relative scarcity of other types of labor. The main difference with immigrants is unlike goods and services, they can commit other acts while they're here, whether it be crime, terrorism, or voting. Uh, those are the differences, <laughs> yeah, lump those together. Those are the differences compared to goods and services, but the core economics are basically the same to it. Uh, so think if they did steal our jobs on net. It's not something particular about an immigrant that's making the job stolen. It would just be increasing the labor force, and it's like a notion of a fixed pie of jobs. Well, what's happened to the civilian labor force since the 1950s? Massive entry of baby boomers, women, and post-1965 immigrants into the workforce. We've seen close to a tripling of the number of workers in the economy since 1950. We should be seeing massive long-term structural unemployment if there's some fixed pool of jobs. Of course, we don't see this. What we see, if, you, if I brought a PowerPoint and you track these things, you could look at total civilian employment and size of the labor force. Little gap between them of unemployment, as always, and during recessions, it gets bigger. But the two of them basically triple in size over this time period. There's just no net effect on jobs overall. Short-term displacements, longer-term reemployment. All right, so what about wages? The overall finding for wages across uh, skill levels and occupations, not very much, basically nothing. It doesn't impact our, the wage rate of existing Americans. Now, I, uh, I once published this in an op-ed, and as Alex knows well, when you publish op-eds on immigration, you get a lot of hate mail. And this one uh, generated some hate mail, and I usually just delete it when it's curses, but I actually responded because I'd had some cocktails. And uh, <laughs> then it, it became a dialogue back and forth with the person where he became more reasonable. And what it boiled down to is he said, I didn't understand supply and demand, which is a curious thing to accuse an economist of. And he's like, you can't claim that they don't steal jobs or they don't push down our wages. Look, it increases the supply of labor. Therefore, it must push down wages and must displace jobs. Total jobs increase, but native-held jobs would decrease under that framework. And, uh, actually, after the whole exchange, he said he wanted to publish it on his immigration website. And uh, I had to look back at that first email I sent. And then I said, OK, go ahead, but just no excerpting. Publish the whole thing. To my knowledge, it's the only time I've been featured on a neo-Nazi website. Uh, but <laughs> because, uh, because he was attacking me, I kind of liked it. Uh, and he ended up making the title of the article, Economics Profession Denies the Laws of Supply and Demand. Well, I was going to just be economist denies the laws of supply and demand. But he actually started looking up the references that I was sending him, which was to this mainstream social science research and economics that says there's not much of an impact here. Uh, and the reason why I think about it, it's not simply a shift out in the supply of labor. One, if immigrants also create demands for goods and services when they come here, it's going to shift out the demand for labor, too. Now there's not a theoretical certainty of what happens. It depends on the magnitude of each of these shifts. Wages could stay the same, could go up, could go down. Two, 
It's not simply the supply of labor. Labor is heterogeneous. If we think about the skill composition of immigrants who come, disproportionately, many of them are very high skill. If you walk around any university in the United States, you see a lot more foreign-born people there than you do in the general population. And disproportionately low skill, thinner in the middle. When you think about the educational profile of the United States overall, you'd think of it, very, if we can use PhD for high skill, I'm not sure we can, but very small percentage would have PhDs. Lots who have college education or high school, very few without high school diploma. Well, once they're complements rather than substitutes for American labor, it's freeing American labor up to do the task that it's better suited to, which would actually enhance your wages, not push them down. Furthermore, as Adam Smith pointed out, specialization and division of labor are limited by the extent of the market. Bring more people into an area, you can have a more fine specialization of labor, which can lead to higher output and thus higher wages as well. All of these things offset the basic notion of you're just shifting out the supply of, of labor here. Uh, so where, does the, where is the economics debate on the wages? It's about the low-skilled workers in the United States. Economists who study immigration debate how does it impact high school dropouts in the United States from immigration here. And the debate ranges from it might be slightly positive for them to it might be at worst negative 8%. This is the vigorous debate, not Lou Dobbs, they're going to drive down our wages and make us poor. No, it's high school dropouts, maybe slightly positive, maybe negative 8%. And then, how long does it last? And most of them find it's not permanent, it's a temporary, which goes with our notion of being reallocated to a better use. At first, you have a depression in your wages, but then you retool your school skill set and go do something you're better suited to do. Wages go back up. That's where the margin of debate is. These things don't amount to what we hear in politics and the pop press about what immigration are doing. And I think if people had a better appreciation for the general social science on this, they could actually concentrate on where there are bigger differences of opinion and where my immigration might have bigger effects. Uh, and the main one of those, I think the main area of social science that's still, uh, I won't say wide open, but pretty close to wide open, is how do immigrants impact our institutions? So it's not a narrowly economic impact, but if immigrants come here and I said at the beginning, the main cause of their poverty is a bad institutional environment at home that doesn't let them make use of their human capital. If you bring a few of them here and their human capital then interacts with our institutions, boom, productivity goes up, world GDP doubles. But if you bring tons of them here, maybe that's too much and they undermine our institutions. And then if we don't have as good institutions, not only do they not create as much value when they come, we ourselves stop creating as much value as what we could create before. This, I think, is the most reasonable objection to immigration. And note, it would only be an objection to mass immigration, not simply the immigration that we have now, or for that matter, significantly increasing the amount of immigration we have now. According to that same Clemens article survey that was mentioned at the beginning, just a migration of 5% of the world's poor to the richer countries would increase global GDP more than uh, eliminating all remaining tariffs to goods and services crossing borders and all capital account restrictions. So even a smaller one that's not going to necessarily at all challenge institutions could be, create massive gains. So now where's the real policy debate is, can we go more than that? And I think reasonable social scientists here could disagree based on what they think about the institutional impact. George Borjas, the prominent economist who's critical of greater immigration I mentioned before, uh, he recently published a paper in the Journal of Economic Literature where he um, modeled six different scenarios, I think, of how much of their negative social capital Im immigrants import into the host country's institutions and what that does to the projected global gains. And in some scenarios, actually makes those global gains become not just smaller, not doubling of world GDP, but negative. Now, he didn't offer any evidence that this is in fact true. He made it up, actually. It's called making assumptions. He made six different assumptions, did the math, and then said what the projections would be. But 
that doesn't mean they actually have this impact, but I think it's a reasonable area to study. And Alex and I and a few co-authors uh, took that as a jumping off point because it's a common, uh, I think it's a common objection among libertarian leading and conservative people, uh, but also among some scholars who are critical. Uh, Collier would be another example like this. Uh, who want to claim that they're going to destroy the society's institutions. So Alex, co-authors, and I, what we did is we actually said, well, and Borjas in his article, by the way, says, what do we know about this? We know little about this, parentheses, read nothing. And then he just makes up six scenarios that all go in the same direction. Um, it's a little bit questionable. So Alex and I said, well, if we know nothing, I guess the first thing to do is start and figure out what the slope of the line is from existing immigration. So we looked at, I think it's roughly 110 countries around the world and uh, that we could get data for on migration and on their economic freedom as a proxy of how good their institutions are. And we looked at stocks of immigrants accumulated by 1990 and also flows over the 20-year subsequent period and said, do either stocks or flows of immigrants impact institutions? We actually found you get a slightly positive effect. More immigrants built up leads to a little bit greater economic freedom. If that's the case, Borjas, every one of those simulations in the wrong direction, and the estimates that Clemens cites underestimate because it doesn't account for the improvement in institutions you get from the immigrants. Now, of course, I sent this paper to, to Borjas, and he wrote me a polite email back and uh, said that that was nice, but it has all of the benefits and drawbacks of a cross-country study, and he doesn't know what existing immigration tells us about a world with open borders. Uh, fair enough, but if you start with knowing nothing, Getting the first slope of the line might tell you something about what assumptions you might want to make afterwards. Uh, but I think this is an area where there can be significant disagreements among scholars that would impact what the global gains could be, and that reasonable scholars would disagree about this. More study is certainly warranted on it. But that is just so radically different than where the policy studies and discussion around what we should do about immigration here in the United States is. There's no way that we endanger our institutions by legalizing people who are currently legally here and increasing legal immigrant flows uh, to levels like we had at the turn of the last century uh, here through legal channels. But uh, I think more scholarship's necessary on these bigger institutional questions, uh, but hopefully uh, this book and events like this will do a little bit more to spread rationality about what uh, basic economic impacts are. Thank you. Thank you, Benjamin. Uh, our next speaker is my colleague, Alec Norwaster. He's the immigration policy analyst here at Cato. His popular publications have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Washington Post, and elsewhere. His academic publications have appeared in the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, the Fletcher Securities Review, and Public Choice. Alex has, on, has appeared on Fox News, Bloomberg, and numerous television and radio stations across the United States. He's the co-author of Open Immigration, Yeah and Nay, published by Encounter Broadsides in 2014. He's a native of Southern California, I guess Southern California, after being annexed to the United States, no, not prior to that. Yeah, that's right. I was born after 1848. Yeah. <laughs> and receive a, a bachelor's in economics from George Mason University and a master of science in economic history from the London School of Economics. Please help me welcome Alex Nowaster. Well, thank you, Juan Carlos, and thank you to all of you for being here today. And thank you, Ben, for uh, flying down on this, uh, I think it's the third real day of winter this winter for us. So thank you for coming out uh, for that. So the question of the fiscal impact of immigration, how does immigration affect taxpayers, I think is one of the questions that is raised frequently, especially 
by libertarians, free marketeers, conservatives, who would otherwise be inclined to allowing for a more free immigration system. They are concerned about the fiscal impact. We do have a large welfare state in the United States. There's government funding uh, for public education, roads, police, a lot of other issues, and these complicate the picture. So immigration does have a very complex effect on government budgets and tax revenue. Uh, put simply, uh, immigrants have three big effects. One is they grow the economy when they are here. Uh, by being here, we are literally adding factors of production when they come here, uh, and the displacement is less than one for one, so they do increase the economy. They do increase tax revenues because they either pay taxes directly, increase profits of firms, which, which then pay taxes, or through other indirect effects, have a larger economy, which increases tax revenue, but they also consume a lot of government services. So they drive on the roads. Uh, they, their children consume public education. Some of them are on means-tested welfare benefits eventually after being here for a long period of time. Um, they also, however, spread the burden of paying for non-congestible or so-called pure public goods, such as the number of people who help pay the national debt, uh, for instance, is uh, helped by having more immigrants here to spread that burden around. Also, we don't need more nuclear missiles to defend us if we have more immigrants, but we can spread out the cost of paying for that if we have more people here. So these are really complex effects. So trying to drill down and to see whether immigration increases the deficits, lower deficits, or have little effect is a really difficult question to answer and could conceivably go either way or both ways uh, or any of those three ways. So what are some of the things that we need to consider when trying to judge this question? Uh, we need to take a look at the uh, demographics of immigrants compared to native-born Americans, such as the age of the immigrants, the number of children they have, their location, whether they speak English, etc. Age is a really important one because most government benefits are intertemporal in nature. That is, they are designed for Americans or people at specific ages, then they fade out with age, like education, and then they, or they kick in at another age, such as Social Security and Medicare benefits. So these matter a lot for determining, the age of immigrants matter a lot to determining the outlays, federal uh, government outlays. The economic impact of immigration that Ben mentioned is also important. A lot of that depends on the education of immigrants, their incomes uh, that we can expect for them to have here, their impact on total factor productivity, that is how these Im immigrants affect sort of the rest of the productivity of other factors in the economy like capital. Uh, whether they are substitutes for Americans or whether there are compliments for them uh, and other impacts. Uh, and then what's most important, of course, and what matters most with judging the fiscal impact is not necessarily the immigration policy, but more government policy in terms of taxes and spending, entitlement, debt, the size of government, etc. These things actually have a far greater impact than whether we mess around with the immigration levels or the types of immigrants. Uh, it also measure, matters whether we take a look at households headed by immigrants or whether we take a look at immigrant individuals for themselves. So I'm going to get into a little bit of these, a few of these complexities and then tell you what the general consensus is in the literature. There are four general ways that people try to measure the fiscal impact of immigration. One is through static accounting which is basically taking a look at the impact on a single year. The other one is through taking a look at macroeconomic models, uh, which is we basically build a model of the economy. We see how adding immigrants to this model uh, grows the economy, and then we assume a certain slice of that extra economy is going to pay for taxes, is going to for tax revenue to fund the government. Sort of a simpler way to do it, but you can gain a lot of insight from it. The other one is general accounting, 
uh, generational accounting, which is sort of a, a more modern way of looking at it. It's more concerned with the intertemporal budget constraints. So we have government policies that fund education when you're young. You're supposed to pay for that in your taxes when you're middle-aged and save for your retirement. And then when you are older, you get Social Security and Medicare. So it takes a look at the age cross-section as being very important. And then there's a net transfer profile, which basically takes slices of immigrants over time and compares these profiles versus non-immigrants to try to get an accounting of that. So static accounting, it's probably the easiest to do, the simplest. It allows you to take a look at how immigration uh, affects fiscal conditions in any particular year, but uh, the limitations are that it's not dynamic and it's not a good basis for trying to analyze any kind of future flows. However, the findings are generally positive in the federal level and mildly negative on the state and local government level in the United States. One of the most, uh, and I'm going to just focus on three numbers in this chart right here. Uh, my laser pointer is not working, uh, but generally this, this study was published in 1998. It took a look at the aggregate fiscal impact of immigration across the United States, and it found that overall, taking into account all levels of government, uh, immigrants decreased the deficit by about $23.5 billion in total, a $51 billion net surplus in the federal government, but a $27 billion loss on the state and local governments. And that's because of the different types of outlays, different types of spending these levels of governments engage in, as well as the taxes paid. Uh, the OECD did a study in 2013 where they took a look at a cross-section of uh, years uh, 2007 to 2009 by household, and they tried to take a look at, including Social Security and Medicare, how, government, uh, how immigrants impacted the budget deficit in those years, and they found that the net fiscal impact, uh, including all the entitlement programs, was to decrease the deficit by about $4.5 billion a year in the United States during that time period. To put that in perspective, though, that's about a 0.03% of GDP uh, decrease in the budget deficit. So essentially a rounding error. Very, very small numbers is what we're talking about. The next set of uh, doing this is called a net transfer profile. You start with that static accounting model that I just showed you, but then you build in the life cycle of these immigrants. You take a look at their age, and then you project their age going forward, and take a look at their descendants, and project how many government benefits they'll use going forward, as well as taxes that they can expect to pay. Uh, and then you produce what's called a net present value, so you discount that into present time period. And there are three essential life cycle phases. One is childhood, where almost everybody is a huge net fiscal cost. If you went to public school like I did, you spent about 12 years uh, consuming a large amount of government resources in those schools. So if I had died by the age of 19, the government would have incurred a very enormous cost for me paying almost nothing in taxes uh, on top of that. However, I did not die at the age of 18, for which I'm eternally grateful. And so I will be working, hopefully, uh, until uh, I'm very old in life. This is called the working lifetime period. I will hopefully produce a net benefit, well, not hopefully, I don't, I'm a libertarian, but um, I will produce a net positive impact in terms of taxes. That is, I will pay more in tax revenue than I will consume during my working life, and then hopefully that will cover the education that I consumed as a child, as well as my Social Security and Medicare when I retire. Now, I don't live in California anymore where I went to public school, so they're out of that money, uh, but... There is, there is still hope that uh, for my retirement, if I died a relatively early age, that I could cover 
all my Social Security and Medicare benefits. So these are the three life cycle phases we want to think about. Uh, what we generally take a look at, and the National Research Council did a very good study of this in 1997, is that immigrants with less than a high school degree are uh, themselves, taking a look at the baseline, produce about a net negative $13,000 uh, when they arrive in the United States. The immigrants themselves, it's very negative of minus 89,000, but when you include your descendants who will assimilate, get more education, do better than their parents did as they acquire human capital, produce a positive outcome. For high school immigrants, the, the uh, net fiscal impact is positive. It's 51,000 net present value. Uh, the immigrants themselves are still negative, but their descendants do better and uh, since the immigrants themselves are less negative, the tax revenue overcompensates. Uh, for those with more than a high school degree, such as college educated, they are positive, their children are positive, and the impact is very positive in the long run. However, overall, weighting the sort of impact by the numbers of people who are here as a percentage of all immigrants in the United States, the overall impact is positive, about $80,000. Uh, per immigrant according to this baseline estimate from 1997. Interestingly enough, a lot of this, uh, these calculations were done uh, the year or the year before federal welfare reform went into effect, which denied means-tested welfare benefits to virtually all immigrants who are not citizens in the United States and most states. So this actually underestimate, this overestimates the cost and underestimates the net fiscal benefits because it doesn't take into account a lot of the benefits of welfare reform. So this is actually a more negative estimate. Now what about the macroeconomic models? We build sort of this big model. We use a computer, uh, computable general equilibrium model or something called an implant model which is used by a lot of local governments mainly for estimating the economic gains from immigration and we just assume that a slice of that gets cut off and used as government revenue. When you take a look at uh, government revenues as a percentage of GDP, they're fairly constant over the recent past, regardless of the tax rates on the books. So this actually isn't as crazy of a model or an assumption as it may seem on paper. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office did an estimate of the 2013 immigration bill using this type of analysis, the Bipartisan Policy Center, and uh, two scholars, uh, Lee and Miller, both combined to do one as well. Now, of course, they have the same problems as all forecasts. Uh, Long-term is unknowable. But what's interesting is they test a lot of different scenarios in immigration, but budgetary changes, tax changes, and economic outcomes over a 75-year period. And what's interesting is in all of these models, what you see is that the federal government always sees a net fiscal gain, and the states themselves always seem and see a net fiscal loss. So, but what's interesting is these numbers are small. So the best case scenario for the federal government is that their net tax revenue increases by 0.7% of revenue, while the worst case scenario for states is a neg negative 0.5% uh, uh, decrease. So the gain to the federal government in terms of net tax revenue uh, outweighs the losses to the state governments when you take a look at it this way, and that's very interesting. Now the CBO, uh, when they took a look at the 2013 Immigration Reform Bill, uh, to my knowledge, that was the first time the CBO used a dynamic model, an enhanced solo model, to try to judge the impact of immigration on the economy. And they looked out to the year 2033. Um, BPC, the Bipartisan Policy Center, used a uh, similar, albeit a little separate model. Now, both of them, however, found approximately the same results, which is a $1.2 trillion decrease in estimated deficits or an increase of net tax revenue due to immigration reform bill of $1.2 trillion uh, through the year 2033. 
Um, the reason why, one of the reasons why they said this and why this is different from a static analysis is that the long-term increase in wages and investment uh, as a result of this immigration reform keeps track with population growth and we sort of see sort of a net increase in the uh, size of the economy and wages, et cetera, uh, over the long run because of this immigration reform bill. Now, generational accounting, sort of the, uh, the last uh, sort of detailed issue I'm going to be talking about, just estimates the present value of government's future spending and subtracts the estimated present value of tax payments to arrive at sort of the net tax burden. And uh, what we assume is that uh, essentially the age structure here is critical. So the ratio of young to old people and how immigrants affect that is very critical to understanding the net fiscal impact uh, here in the United States. So if immigrants do lower the average age a little bit, it does have a much more positive impact on government uh, net fiscal impact because of the way that the federal government's uh, budgetary obligations and taxes and payments are structured. Um, along these veins, Auerbach and Oriopoulos and a good paper from 1999, they find that immigration has almost zero impact on net federal budgets taking a look at this through this methodology. They find that it is driven entirely by fiscal policy, entirely by the spending and tax choices of the federal government or other governments, not by how the population is affected through immigration. Rothorn uh, ran numerous different scenarios, and he had trouble in getting his models and the legitimate models to have an effect where the uh, if, uh, impact on government budget deficits or surpluses is greater than 1% of GDP. He could only find in really insane scenarios, such as the native birth rate drops from about two per uh, children per woman to about half a child per woman in a very short amount of time, and immigration increases dramatically uh, by, by about 150% are basically the only scenarios where you get an impact of 1% or greater. So really unrealistic scenarios uh, there right now. Uh, taking a look outside the United States, because I've been focusing on the U.S. basically the entire time, uh, Europeans love generational accounting as a way to take a look at this. They like it a lot more than Americans do, generally. And they found positive but small net fiscal contributions to immigration in places like Germany, Spain, Italy, the EU in general, and Austria. The only place in Europe where I found that there are consistently negative results are in France, uh, driven again by French fiscal policy. So I hate to be the boring one up here, but I just don't have a really interesting conclusion. Uh, essentially, the net fiscal impact of immigration, you take a look at all these studies in all these different ways over time, different ways of studying it. Essentially, um, immigration has a very small effect on federal and state budgets over the long run. Um, it is not, all the results are essentially clustered around zero. Some are a little bit positive, some are a little bit negative, but uh, except in very extreme situations. Uh, I do not think the fiscal results um, are good arguments for people like myself who are in favor of liberalizing immigration. I don't think we can really hang our hat on this and say that, you know, if we do this, it will definitely decrease deficits in the long run. But I think that opponents of immigration reform also can't really use it as an argument for uh, decreasing immigration. What's interesting, and one caveat I want to put into here, a lot of these different studies have taken a look at what happens, what are the estimated effects of decreasing future immigration on the United States, or what are the impacts of decreasing the population, and it's almost, and it's uniformly more negative 
than all of the results they've had here of either increase, increasing immigration or keeping it the same. So that's definitely something to keep in mind uh, when we think about this. And just a, a quick ethical uh, comment, uh, because um, I do have a heart, although I am published in economics journals. Um, people are definitely worth more than the sum of their net tax contributions. Uh, and I think that uh, that should be taken more seriously when people debate uh, this issue going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. Now for a more critical uh, view of this topic, we're going to have uh, our next speaker, who is uh, Neil Ruiz. He's currently the executive director of the Center for Law, Economics, and Finance at George Washington University Law School. He's an expert on the political economy of the global race for talent, skills, and labor. His work has been widely cited in media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Economist, Financial Times, CNN, and Time Magazine. Neil was previously a think tank scholar at the Brookings Institution, an international migration specialist at the World Bank, a consultant for the Asian Development Bank, and a teaching fellow at Harvard University. He received uh, his PhD in political science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, his master's degree in economic history from Oxford University, and a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of California at Berkeley. Please help me welcome Neil Ruiz. Thank you very much. I just want to thank, congratulate all the authors here for an excellent book. Um, I think this is, does is very timely given to be able to provide facts given the politics that's going on now. And even, even though immigration is a top issue, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think this book does a good job of compiling all of it together. So today I'm just going to briefly comment on kind of three significant contributions of this book. First, on the framing and facts. Second, on competing policy proposals in the book that haven't been mentioned yet. And then thirdly, about pragmatic solutions based on facts. And me, given, given that I'm a political economist, I'm not a pure economist, I'm not a pure libertarian, I'm not a libertarian, I'm more of a fact-based social scientist. <laughs> I still believe, you know, that there is still uh, politics and place matters, and there is a big, of course, protectionism um, air of in our environment now that is actually um, leading towards the, the way the polit political rhetoric is, m is moving. So first off, the book, in terms of framing and facts, the book offers excellent economic framing of the facts based on social science research, and I think it's really important, again, to get the facts r right. Now, the study really does point out kind of problems within the literature showing that there are, there are small, there's a wide agreement about the benefits of immigration, but there are four areas, I guess, of, of kind of contention is potential skill shortages, the negative impacts of immigration on native born workers um, in the labor market, which this is, of course, always on the headlines um, when it talks about immigration, issues of assimilating in American society. As we know, we have different demographics now in terms of the way our um, immigrant wave of immigrants are coming, and there's always a talk about language and assimilation, as well as the fiscal impact of government spending that Alex nicely um, laid out. So most of the ev evidence in this book shows you know, the negative impact of native born wages are temporary. There's some disagreement, but mo most widely, they're either they're, 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 the impact is, um, is temporary. Secondly, the net benefit is most, mostly positive in the long run, while also helping to fill skills needs. Thirdly, the efficiency gains for Americans are great, because it actually allows people to specialize in other areas and other occupations. 
And fourthly, you have a global welfare gain. You know, in economics, you have the idea of comparative advantage. And you have, um, in the globalized world now, we have people, trade and capital moving back and forth and free, free movement of, of goods, and, but not of people. But being able to move and um, promoting labor to move to those areas where they are, can be most productive is important because it actually helps general welfare of, of, of everyone, all, all humans. And the evidence from the book also shows minimal impact or threat to American cultural and civic institutions posed by recent migrants to the United States. But it also has an underlying tone that it shows that our broken immigration system has opened up opportunities for creating what we have now, a big mess, a big gray markets for people to come to the United States, workarounds even through our legal system, that legal immigration system, just to be able to stay in the United States. So the way we've been framing the immigration debate here in the US is a big problem. We haven't thought of it or th uh, think more globally. Um, it's been very insular. But um, even though politically the power, again, we still have to deal with the political institutions that we have and national governments has the power to create um, immigration policy. But if we look at a global uh, perspective, you know, the United States is, the facts show that US is the unique country in the world that is, has the largest um, immigrants of any country in the world, 400 mil, 40 million to be exact. And we have a big interesting composition of, of migrants currently. Since 2012, you know, Mexicans are about 11 million or so. Indians, about 2 million. Filipinos, um, as well as 2 million. China, El Salvador, South Korea, um, and other emerging economies that are competing against the United States also um, migrating to the United States. But the flow of immigrants coming to the United States depends, looking at this global perspective, also depends on economic political cycles in the US as well as the economic and political cycles in the countries of origin. So in the US, we know that we had an upswing and downswing during the, our good times during the dot-com boom and also during when American economy was doing great. But also we had a drop since September 11th, September 11th and also during the Great Recession and now we're slowly recovering. This also flow also matters on the countries of origin. We know that countries like Mexico and the Philippines and other countries that are competing with China and the United States are doing better. Um, China, other countries are not doing as well as they were um, last year, but I think that um, Mexico and the Philippines are examples of fast growth economies and the demographics are changing. Where you have, especially from Mexico, and the book points out, you do have um, a slowdown of Mexican migrants um, um, coming to the United States. So um, we do have now competing countries with the United States in terms of, of global leadership. And I think that's what we need to think. We need to think in terms of a global framing. And the way we framed the immigration problem has been more insular, US-centric, and a lot of literature, of course, because of data um, availability has always been focused that way. And what, I, what I've always argued in my own work um, has been that US immigrants and the way we frame them immigrants in general, migrants in general, are economic ambassadors contributing to two economies simultaneously. And this is where the models is touched upon a little bit in the, in the book, but the policy, policy perspective should be able to take into account both. And this, migrants contribute in three ways. The skills flows, the capital flows, and then the trade and production flows. Skill flows, immigrants contribute to the US economy by providing kind of both high-skilled and highly labor-intensive work. We know that the large majority of low-skilled um, workers and you know, immigrants in the US are in highly labor-intensive work. These are fields in agriculture, construction, service industries, or what some in the literature would argue jobs that are, um, Americans are unwilling to take. 
Yet we do have um, temporary worker programs that are not uh, that are underutilized in these areas in the United States because of bureaucratic price and um, cheaper costs actually going the legal route. So our, our system currently incentivizes immigrants to cross the border, overstay their visas, not allowing workers to come back and forth between their country and or, uh, um, origin and the U.S., even though some polls, global polls like Gallup have shown that, and Pew as well has shown that um, migrants, uh, sometimes people would prefer to actually move back and forth between two places at the same time, especially the border between the U.S. and Mexico. Secondly, there's a large portion of immigrants that are high-skilled, and U.S. is the global hub of higher education um, in the world. As my previous studies when I was at Brookings showed that the large majority of, of uh, foreign students in particular are studying in the st science, technology, engineering, and math, the STEM fields, and also in business. These are fields that are highly sought out by employers, not just in the United States, but around the world, also especially in their countries of origin. But yet, America's current visa system keeps many foreign students in a state of uncertainty um, if they can stay and work in the United States after they graduate. Um, as we know that there's a program called Optional Practical Training where you, the students could have 12 to 29 months if they have a STEM degree. But then after that, they have to actually get and apply for an H-1B visa. And we know that in the last four years since the economy is doing better, those visas are hard to come by and now it's being distributed by a lottery. Then if they do get an H-1B visa and get sponsored by the employer, we do have a green card system that doesn't allow um, that is based on um, per-country quotas, and it's a disadvantage for big countries, and especially where a lot of foreign students come from in China and India, they're gonna be waiting in, a, in back of the line for a long time, up to 10 years. But we know from this high-skilled immigrants who are coming to the U.S., innovation in many of the world's pioneering innovations came from immigrants, especially in Silicon Valley. Think of Yahoo, Google, um, large majority of startups in Silicon Valley and around the United States. So a large portion of high-skilled foreigners work in fields in the healthcare, high-tech manufacturing, IT, and life science industries. Another um, asset of migrants is their capital flows. Um, at the same time, America's immigrants are contributing to the countries of, um, to the United States, they're also at the same time contributing to the countries of origin. And evidence has shown that a lot of migrants in the U.S., especially lower-skilled immigrants, actually send a lot of money back home to their home communities. Remittances, this money that's sent back to their home communities, the World Bank estimates it's almost $600 billion sent last year. The largest chunk, are, uh, over $400 billion, are going to poorer nations, to developing countries. This is four times more than the official development assistance, almost as large as global foreign direct investment. And the top countries receiving these remittances is India, $70 billion, China, $66 billion, Mexico and Philippines tied for $24 billion. And U.S. sends a large portion of our remittances to Latin America and the Caribbean, given our demographics of our migrants. So, but what this does, these remittances help alleviate poverty. We always talk about the World Bank and development assistance to countries, uh, to the poor. This money that migrants are sending currently actually are helping, and evidence have shown that they do help their households um, out of poverty, especially in expenditures of, are also helping them with education um, and medical costs. Trade and production flows, lastly, is an asset. Immigrants also form these things that are hard to measure economically, these networks. Um, they are part, whether they're low-skilled or high-skilled, they have these networks. And there's a lot in the literature that have shown that Silicon Valley in particular, especially a lot of migrants working in, in Silicon Valley in the R&D center in Silicon Valley, they've helped actually facilitate production flows in the countries of origin, like in Taiwan with a silicon chip production. 
And as we know, anything that we have from computers, there are, uh, nothing's made in one area, one place. They're made in multiple places worldwide. And that's why migrants themselves and our immigrants who are here also help facilitate that as well, these exchanges, because they have the language, the cultural background, the networks back home, as well as the networks here in the United States. So now let me go into competing policy proposals from the book. The book um, offers three competing policy proposals. One is a market-based approach by trying to solve this, um, our current problematic um, bureaucratic um, and uncertain um, immigration system by selling about one and a half million visas in the open market that could potentially raise, according to the book, about 17.5 billion new um, money, um, dollars in revenues and also help it become a more uh, efficient way of allocating visas. A second proposal is about a grand bargain, a grand bargain to legalize the undocumented immigrants who are here already, but do it in exchange for the end of, of mass legal migration and focusing on assimilating our current immigrants. Thirdly, another proposal is open borders. Just have a pure world of open borders where some countries will lose large populations and others will gain. Such as think about the United States where some people move from the south to north or Midwest to um, west to the west coast. But there are problems with each of these proposals because I believe that place and politics still matter, as we know, because that's how anything a decision ma makes uh, is placed. Problems with each of these proposals are the first, politically, the grand bargain sounds the most promising in terms of uh, politically going through, but decreasing legal immigration flows will just promote the creation of great, um, more gray markets and a future illegal immigration to the United States. Secondly, the market-based approach to selling visas in the open market is a very efficient method, but it biases towards those who are rich and high-skilled. And also, distributing visas probably to places where they may not need them most, or focusing on the richer areas where we do have places in the United States that have um, also a need for, for visas. Thirdly, the um, open borders um, could work, but the, it's an ideal world that is um, zero, probably close to zero chance of happening because you would have to have every uh, country agree in having an open border and no one would want to give up control of their borders. So what I want to focus in on is the pragmatic solutions. How do we get from the facts that we have here that are nicely laid out in the book, some proposals of ideal types of how to move forward, but also pragmatic, taking into account the political mess that we're in right now. So I'm still a believer of some government regulation of a market for visas, but I also believe believer in facts. Um, this is why I recommend some type of government entity to take away the visa levels that come to the United States, away from politics and bargaining, but more into the hands of, of data. Um, and just to give you an example, in one of my papers on H-1B visas, I showed how the demand for H-1B visas varied by place in the United States, by industry, and certain places, there were some anomalies when I was looking at the data, where you had places like Columbus, Indiana, where Cummins Incorporated is located, had a high demand for STEM H-1Bs, but they just couldn't get them. Where you have places in Rochester, New York, where, uh, or Rochester, Minnesota, uh, where Mayo Clinic is located, have also a high demand. So you do have this places within the US where really getting an H-1B visa or a high school migrant matters more than maybe in other places. So we need a system that also takes into account not just the national statistics is not enough, but looking at the local labor market within the US. 
I'm not trying to say that we need to have government do everything and be the big brother with uh, everything going on, but we need something where that takes into consideration place, because place matters, as we know, political boundaries, um, as we know how Congress is made, off, made up of, that, that matters because they answer the constituents. You know, the political science inside me says uh, politics still matters and place especially matters. So I think that the book is great in terms of offering us this economic view and all the facts of, of that's out there in, in, the, in the literature, but I really believe still, in order to move forward, we need to still get to what they tried to do in terms of a grand bargain, but something that's probably more pragmatic. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. Uh, before opening the floor to questions, I, I don't know if you have some comments. Sure, uh, just a couple. I appreciate your comments a lot. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> uh, one thing that you inspired in that and been pointing out is this book is very US-centric and not uh, necessarily generalizable to other countries around the world. And of course, with an academic publisher, it was with them for over a year once we were done the manuscript in Europe wasn't going on <laughs> with what's happening right now. So I think I'd like to say just a few words about Europe, because I actually think they have a much worse immigration problem than we do but it has nothing to do with the immigrants themselves. It has mostly to do with Europe's lousy economic laws, uh, in particularly their labor market regulation. Uh, and that makes it a lot harder to get the economic gains out of an immigrant, to make the immigrants support themselves, and for that matter, to integrate and assimilate into the rest of the society. I think one of the primary ones are European laws that make it very difficult to dismiss a worker once you've hired them. It basically amounts to if we had a law about marriage, where before you could go out on your first date, you'd have to commit to marriage with no possibility of divorce. Doing this, you're not going to want to get married. Well, that's what employers face when they're hiring people in many European countries. Now, if that's your constraint, what do you go with? You go with the tried and true that you know is dependable, somebody who's already from your country and who's older. So it discriminates against immigrants and against young workers. It's one of the reasons for very high youth unemployment rates in Europe. Uh, and once you've done this now, the immigrants can't get in, integrate into the labor force, support themselves. So what do they do? They enclave. They enclave and try to support themselves like that. The rest of society doesn't like it. They make demands on the rest of society. Now you get attention and the rise of hard right parties who are anti-immigrant in Europe. But I don't think it's anything fundamental about them being Muslim or anything else or where you're coming from there. It's, it's basically the labor markets are shifting into a bad equilibrium there uh, and that they should address those laws. Uh, the other thing, what I, I'll respond and react to just a little bit, is the, the last part about taking place into account. And this, it, it, I think that's important. If, so let's just premise this with, if we're going to have some form of quantitative restriction on immigration, then we want the rational mix of immigrants. And place can be part of that, but I don't know how to centrally plan this market any better than I could centrally plan any others. No Canadian point system or thing like that adequately captures the subjective evaluations of people who want to reunite with family members, people who have subjective entrepreneurial uh, expectations of the value they can create by hiring a worker. The only way we can reconcile those is with a price system. So I'd argue that the market for visas does exactly that. And it doesn't have to bias against low-skill people. If you want to support low-skill immigrants, form a charity, raise money, and buy visas for them. If you're a protectionist, buy visas and burn them. If uh, <laughs> if you're a family member and you want to be reunited with your brother, brother, now your bidding on a visa is reconciling your subjective evaluation of that, the, the reconciliation of, of you two with the evaluation by Bill Gates who's trying to hire someone at Microsoft and that marginal worker's value to him. I think it's the best coordinated mechanism we have if we're going to have a quantitative cap. And I'll, I'll just end with, in the part about open borders, I certainly realize is not really policy relevant in the United States today, but a very provocative claim made by Brian Kaplan in that chapter is that 
if the gains, and this is why I think, by the way, that the importance of the institutions argument and how big the global gains from immigration could be, I think that's the crucial argument. And what Brian claims is he says that if those gains are anywhere near accurate, every major moral theory dictates open borders. Whether you're a Rawlsian, a utilitarian, doesn't matter. I think that says if it's not politically possible here, we've got a lot of work to be doing uh, to shift the terms of the debate. I just want to add uh, one point about Europe and to distinguish between Europe and the United States. I get a lot of uh, angry hate mail, phone calls, and tweets about my work about immigration in the United States. And when I respond to the work in the United States about the data here, the effect here, one of those common responses is what, uh, no acknowledgement of that. What about France? Or what about Germany? Or what about Sweden? And this, I think, anecdote puts into perspective what Ben said about the difference in laws between Europe and the United States. In the United States, for a refugee, the stated policy goal of the United States government is to get that person to work immediately, as fast as possible, in any job, anywhere in the United States. If they could get a job six hours after landing, U.S. government policy encourages that effect. In Europe, there are laws against hiring a refugee in many countries for up to a year of them being in those countries. Sweden uh, has enormous hiring restrictions. You cannot hire a refugee for, I believe, it's nine months to a year after they arrive in the country legally. Uh, in many Northern European countries, you cannot do so. You have to have a waiting period. The, uh, England has a three-month, uh, the UK has a three-month period of time before you can hire somebody. That seems like the lowest hanging fruit the easiest policy shift that you can undertake in Europe to try to improve the quality of the situation there that, we, uh, that is just night and day compared to the United States in terms of our approach. Neil, do you want to add something? I think that, I, think that um, I mean, I agree. In an ideal world that, you know, in terms of price, if everyone was going to, you know, if the protectionists wanted to buy visas, that's actually an interesting way to think about it. Would they be able to burn them? Yeah, I want to see how many Borjas will burn. <laughs> but I really still think that, I mean, it is hard to find, figure out this place because we did have some, I mean, since we had this problem with nothing happening, there has been proposals with certain states wanting to have visas. So you have, you know, Michigan with its loss of population and trying to gain, you know, they really see the benefits and you have other places also within the U.S. are just trying to figure out how, what can they work within the current system to actually get the visas they want. I think that it's, that's still challenging because I think that, again, politically, trying to come to an agreement, can you imagine every congressperson um, would be arguing for their place? So they probably wouldn't ever get to agreement, given the way our political institutions are structured. But I think that in an ideal world, um, I think that, um, yeah, it's, it's complicated to also add the place. All right, we're going to open the floor for questions. Uh, uh, please follow some simple rules. Please wait to be called on. Uh, wait for the microphone. And please announce your name and affiliation. Uh, so, Will, I want to see some hands right here. Wait for the microphone. And please stand up. Yeah. John Bushker from doastotel.com. Just pre pre preface the question. In fact, there's a film, The Good, the Good Lie. I watched it last night with Reese Witherspoon about assimilation of immigrants from um, Africa in that case. That's the, what I wonder about is assimilation. In 1980, 
there was a push to um, to get people to actually sponsor individual refugees from the Mirabel Boat Project and from Cuba. There was a lot of pressure in the gay and lesbian community. Um, and you know, there's a situation with Russia now and the policy since 2013. There hasn't been this kind of push or pressure this time. And there has not been very much talk about how it would affect individual Americans if you brought more people over in terms of being actually able to help them get a job and so forth. It's sort of a vague idea that there would be faith-based intermediaries that would help this, but there hasn't been very much explicit discussion of how this would work this time around. But I suspect that discussion will have to happen pretty soon. I know at the D.C. Center for the situation in Russia, there's a little bit of talk about it, but it's not very much out in the open. Can you comment on that? What should the public expect as far as being asked to sponsor people or be hosts? What should the faith-based communities the churches and so forth expect in this regard um, because a lot of people simply can't work productively immediately when they come given this environment that they came from so that film the good lie shows you what can happen thank you uh so i'll i'll try to uh answer that question there have been different episodes in america's past where individuals or groups have been allowed to sponsor refugees uh you mentioned mariel boatlift one of the more recent ones was a lot of uh, jewish refugees from the soviet union in the early 90s there was a memorandum of understanding between the government different charities that were basically the charities said that they would take on the costs of um, you know resettling these folks here in the United States and be responsible for them. Uh, the law doesn't allow for that now, although the government could sign memorandums of understanding, memoranda of understanding with different groups to try to jumpstart that. Uh, so we've seen in the past, it could work now. Um, Canada, interestingly enough, does have a sponsorship program where Canadian individuals and families and organizations are allowed to sponsor refugees, and they've let in uh, somewhere, I believe, around 30,000 Syrian refugees into Canada, uh, which is many, many times as many as uh, have been allowed into the United States since the beginning of the uh, Syrian civil war. So they have a lot of success with that. Uh, one of the groups actually doing a lot of good work on this is the Niskanen Center, uh, David Beer over there uh, and Matthew LaCourt have done a lot of work and research about how to structure this, how it's legal, uh, the type of memoranda that the government has to sign, what the charities have to do to step up, and how much money they should have to contribute or indemnify these migrants for in order to uh, sponsor a lot of these migrants. Uh, now, in terms of the assimilation piece that you mentioned, we have a wonderful, ch there's a wonderful chapter in this book by Jacob Vigdor, who's, I believe, is now at University of Washington uh, right now, where he tries to measure current assimilation trends, cultural, on a whole different wide measurement from marriage rates, children, religiosity, English language, education, and he compares those today uh, and the trend lines over time compared to immigrants in the early 20th century where we have data, and what he essentially finds is that immigrants today are assimilating at the same rates as they did 100 years ago. Uh, the difference is today, we read about it 100 years ago, and we flip the page, and 70 years passes, and it was all hunky-dory. We're in the middle of it now, though. So from our perspective, it looks messy, but the trends are all great and going in the same direction. And since this book was published, there's been a wonderful report out by the National Academy of Sciences, which takes a look at, I mean, as much social science as any human being should ever be allowed to consume in one sitting, uh, 600 pages worth and one you know, full of it, uh, about how assimilation is going very well in the United States, economically, linguistically, culturally, values, everything like that today. 
So um, maybe uh, as a libertarian, I value that more than most other libertarians do, but I think assimilation is very important, and there's really not a good, re good reason to worry about it today. Uh, Nick Farmer, uh, there are two macroeconomic issues that people seem to have trouble explaining. One is workforce participation. The other one is uh, productivity, both of which are lower than people can fully explain. Do you think immigration, both legal and illegal, could have any impact on these two broad macroeconomic issues? So, uh, Possibly on the first to some extent to people who were displaced in the, you know, the Great Recession. Uh, if immigrants are there, and it could influence people's decision to stay out of the workforce rather than continuing to seek employment. But like we said, when we look at the overall social science on this in general, we don't see a net effect on jobs. So I don't see either of these as being very much an immigration issue. You have one more question over there? The back. Uh, Arjun Devali from the University of Virginia. Although there are clear positive effects because of immigration worldwide, don't you think that a brain drain on developing countries will cause negative effects on their economies through something such as open borders and increased immigration worldwide? Yeah, I'll take that one. This is something we address in the in the first chapter of the book. So. Uh, we have to realize a couple of things with this. One is, was the brain, so brain drain, right, is highly skilled people leaving third world countries, moving to the first world, and leaving the third world country worse off as a result. So one, was the brain being made full use of in the third world country? So if they didn't have good institutions, they weren't creating as much value with their brain as they could. So some, the brain gain does not equal the brain drain because where it was couldn't produce as much before. Second, we have to look at, would they have gained the education skills they had if they hadn't had the potential to migrate. So we find many people get high skills and high education with an eye towards migration, which means the, uh, the origin country gets their skills for a short period of time before they leave, uh, and that this effect can partially offset that. And then the, the third part that you mentioned is the, the, the massive flow of um, remittances back to the home countries. And once we account for remittances going back and do all these things, the origin countries generally gain slightly by having people who are educated leave. Yeah, the, um, I could comment also. I, I read it also in the book, but also when I was at the World Bank, we worked a lot on this work. Um, the brain drain really doesn't impact large countries that are sending immigrants. It's mostly smaller countries. The evidence shows it's, it's really, really small countries where it has a big impact on, on the countries of origin. But also in terms of talking about brain drain, uh, brain gain, but there's also about what I talked about in my talk about brain circulation. You do have people, and I think this, it, there's not enough evidence yet in the literature, but I think that we do have case studies where we shows a lot of um, network effects of, especially in the high-skilled front, in terms of immigrants, especially in Silicon Valley tech centers um, and new hubs around the world. So you do have people going back and forth. So countries can gain. The question is how can the countries of origin deal with um, creating policies so they can leverage their migrants abroad? Not necessarily having to have to come home, or the, and there's a whole debate there, whether they have to go home, you have to put restrictions, don't let them leave um, if, if they're in a country that needs them. And the United Kingdom itself actually made restrictions, actually, on certain making a list of countries where doctors, for instance, couldn't 
couldn't uh, migrate to the United Kingdom. Um, and that was a problem because how do you know that in ideal world, okay, you assume that that migrant will, that doctor will end up staying in their, in their country of origin in Ghana or, or, or Cote d'Ivoire, um, but then that migrant could actually go somewhere else. So then it actually doesn't work. The policy fails. So I think that you do have, there's a whole literature, big debate around this area of brain drain. And, and I'd like to uh, chime in with one impact on the institutions. There's a wonderful paper uh, about how, uh, basically from the time of the Mexican Revolution till the mid-90s, the PRI, which was the big Mexican political party, had a monopoly on politics in Mexico. And they were very corrupt. And the way that they got elected was by funneling money to local governments so that they could distribute patronage, sorry, so they could distribute patronage to basically get votes. And in order to get patronage in your local community, you had to vote for the PRI. And if they had fewer votes, they got less money from the federal government. So it was a very sort of corrupt, uh, very openly. I mean, that's not too different from how politics works anywhere, but it's more openly corrupt and worse. And it prevented the reform of Mexican institutions, which held back growth. What we see, though, is that beginning in the mid-90s, about the time the PRI started to lose its grip, is the areas in Mexico that sent the most migrants to the United States started to not vote for the PRI. Why? Because they had an alternative source of revenue, that is the migrants in the United States sending them money. So they weren't dependent upon the Mexican government or the PRI funneling them largesse anymore and able to live. They were able to survive instead and to thrive and do better on migrants from the United States sending them money, which allowed them to vote for different political parties, offering real political reform. And I don't think there's a mistake that since the mid-90s, we've seen macroeconomic stabilization. In Mexico, we've seen the privatization of lots of their natural resource base. We've seen the expansion and protection of prior property rights and a lot of other pro-reform, uh, pro-growth policies, partially as a result because this old political monopoly was broken uh, in large part due to migration. That's very interesting. Uh, we have a question. Oh, oh, you have somebody else sitting up? We have a question over here. And please keep your hands up so I can see more or less where, where to go. Jim Lowen, private practice sociologist. Uh, surely our policies influence um, who we get. Can you yeah. get the microphone? Surely our policies influence who we get. Uh, our present kind of chaotic policy in an area I live near, Langley Park, causes people to come from El Salvador if they have a connection to MS-13 because MS-13, the infamous gang, knows how to get people into the United States. And so I'm wondering if we, wouldn't it be a good idea if we, for example, required English proficiency for folks from El Salvador uh, and maybe some other places too, um, wouldn't then the rational immigrant um, go to an English school and learn English instead of go to MS-13 and get connected up that way? And wouldn't that be better for both countries? So I won't speak too much to the English part. All I would say is that the more legal paths we give for people to get here, the fewer illegal paths and the problems associated with that will be taken. Uh, whether we want to use uh, English language as a politically way to issue more visas to some countries or not, that's a, a political decision purely. But uh, more legal paths would be better. Over there, in the back. Thank you. Mario Lopez with the Hispanic Leadership Fund. Um, so what, a lot of what we've heard from you all from the panel today certainly runs contrary to the loaded political rhetoric we hear, especially from some Republican candidates like Ted Cruz <clears throat> and folks like that. Um, what, why are the talking points 
that they're using? Why are they so bad? Where do they come from? Um, and what are their, you know, quickly, if you can summarize, what are their, their main faults, I think would be great. Well, I mean, I think a successful politician is one who, this is kind of paraphrasing H.L. Mencken maybe, uh, who plays to the boogaboos and superstitions of the electorate, and a really successful politician is one who creates them for them that they were just longing to have in the first place. And so I think what we get from the rhetoric of these candidates is an appeal to a group that's not educated about this issue, is generally unhappy with the trajectory of America or maybe their economic circumstances, and you scapegoat somebody and talk about it, and that buys you votes. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's very uh, easy politically uh, to blame foreigners or people who can't vote, like immigrants or China, China, uh, than it is to blame Americans because uh, those people don't, you know, vote in the United States. So it's very easy and costless to blame them and to cast all aspersions on them. And what we see, you know, historically is uh, usually during poor economies, we see very large increases in support for nativism or anti-immigration policies. Uh, sometimes it's also fueled by, uh, by ideology. So at certain points in America's past, labor unions have led the charge to uh, restrict immigration. I mean, uh, if you take a look at Samuel Gomper's work in the late 1800s and early 20th century, you saw a switch in a lot of labor union positions in the early 2000s to being in a more sort of favorable direction. You also have a large influence by the uh, environmentalist movement in the 70s, which was very odd. Um, uh, sort of this, uh, this whole notion that uh, humans are bad for the environment, especially in rich countries because we consume so many resources. Um, so therefore, we need to have fewer humans in the first world, and a great way to do that is immigration restrictions. That's mostly died out on the left as an idea, but it lives on uh, in some organizations uh, uh, that try to align themselves in the political right. So it's uh, a very complicated diffusion of problems, but mostly it's very easy to blame uh, foreigners a lot easier to blame foreigners than it is to blame uh, any fault of your own or what else is wrong with the economy that's more difficult to fix. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's very, I, mean, I agree with the, the other panelists here, but I think what's also interesting why we, for Mario's comment, that why do we get, question why we get these, uh, the rhetoric now, given that indicators show that we're doing much better as an economy, unemployment rates are low, we actually now raise the interest rate, but I think what the politicians are um, feeding off of is how it was distributed in inequality in the United States. So I think that you have this in the left and the right. Yeah. Um, so as um, Alex pointed out, labor unions also, if people don't feel, you know, there's always sometimes, especially in politics, especially when it comes to immigration policy, there's always a, um, a marriage between the far right and the far left uh, on, on anti-immigrant um, issues, but I think that the inequality that is distributed in terms of the, our economy, that's probably what's contributing to why politicians are now um, feeding off of and blaming immigrants. Yeah, uh, Pat Span, just myself. I uh, seems like um, you're all into sort of uh, open borders thing, but I wonder if each of you could just g quickly give a, a schema of how you perceive what the U.S. immigration policies should be. Thank you. All right, well, I'll take a first stab at it. So if I just had the, the levers of power and could choose, I would, uh, with the reservation of the possible impact on institutions, I think what we'd say is 
push for much, much greater flows of immigrants until there's some evidence that it's undermining the institutions or has the potential to, and otherwise move towards the world of open borders, but you don't have to do open borders overnight if you have reservations about how they can impact your institutions. Just increase quantity uh, year after year until we no more have evidence of some sort of problem there, and if we don't, continue on. You don't want to go first? My non-radical solution. <laughs> want to go first? I guess uh, for, for me, I'm more about you know, an ideal world, if we could really scrap our whole immigration system, we could start all over. There's a lot of good ideas here, but that's realistically not going to happen. So I think pragmatically, given the way things are, I think that we need to think about a system where we don't have to wait politically decades until we could reform our immigration system. Our immigration system is so old that we have, um, and the problem here is that 10, 20 years from now, when they actually come to a bargain, um, if we do come to a, bar a grand bargain or fixes, they're going to be irrelevant 10, 20 years from now. So I think that I would go for a more ideal a situation where you could fluctuate the number of visas that are available based on economic indicators that politicians don't um, um, make decisions, but maybe a, a independent kind of a, not bureau, but a standing commission that can make the recommendations to government and say, here's what the data tells us. We need to adjust the visa levels, and here's what we should do. And that's probably my, the realistic uh, view of what we can do. So most people talk about what to do with the uh, undocumented immigration or unlawful immigrants who are currently here in the United States. That sort of gets the most amount of attention. Uh, I do think that they should be legalized and have a path to citizenship. Uh, but I think the most important, with the usual caveats, uh, I think the most important uh, perspective, though, is fixing the lawful immigration going forward so that we don't have a repeat of unlawful immigration in the next 20 or 30 years. Like, I really want to put myself out of a job so that we can solve this problem going forward. And I think the biggest gains to be had are liberalizing lawful immigration. So one, I mean, if I can't overthrow the entire system, I think one big change would be to uh, either get rid of or reform all of the guest worker visa systems that we have now that put restrictions on workers, on how they can move between companies or restrictions on skills, and just open that up dramatically and make them as mobile as other native-born American workers to switch jobs without asking the government for permission, without paying any fees, without fear of deportation or anything like that, and then to increase those numbers dramatically for people in every single skill level. So not make it discriminate by occupation, but just open it up so that any worker can basically come here for a period of time uh, and work uh, with usual security checks, but treat them like other workers in the economy so they can switch jobs if they have a bad employer or they feel like they're being undervalued or there's abuse or anything else like that. Uh, I think the best way to regulate a labor market is to allow the worker to regulate him or herself so that they can pick any employer they want to go at. I think that would be a really big step in the right direction. Another way would be to replace all these complexities with quotas and formulas and everything with just a tariff. Yeah. You know, create a tariff, uh, maybe base it on the skill of the worker and their net fiscal, estimated net fiscal impact, price it so that they'll be mildly positive. Use that money that you gain from that to compensate Americans who lose from that system. Uh, that's a very sort of uh, economics, economist way of thinking about it. Uh, and do that, use that going forward. Sort of a Gary Becker approach. We're going to have uh, three more questions, quick questions, quick answers. Uh, we're going to go here, here, and there over there. Mm. 
My name is Steve, and your wonderful presentations. A political science question. Has any research been done on the attitudes of national leaders concerned about losing their more talented and ambitious nationals? Does it have the behavior of these leaders moved toward coercion and preventing these people from leaving or making such changes in their society as will uh, discourage these people um, from emigrating and, and lead them instead to contributing in their own countries? Most of the policy proposals I've seen by uh, people in the developing world is to put taxes on people who are smart and thinking about immigrating in order to decrease the benefits of them doing so or other sort of protectionist measures. Uh, I know Singapore has a policy, at least a friend of mine who was uh, uh, Singa from Singapore in grad school had to return. Uh, the government paid for his education, so he owed them, and one of the ways they wanted that debt repaid was for him to go back to Singapore and waste his time teaching in public schools, uh, even though he had a master's degree and could have been making a lot more money and contributing a lot to an economy. They wanted him to... Um, uh, go and do that instead. So most of my knowledge about that is how governments try to stop or uh, incentivize or cajole people to come back through that those kinds of mechanisms, not by fundamental institutional reforms that make them actually want to go back. Um, a good example that I have um, in my own work is from the Philippines in particular. They're a very interesting country because the national leaders for over four decades now um, almost five now, have been focusing on a labor export program. Um, and that's a very fascinating case because you have the Philippines that has a regulatory body that actually, instead of having people move on their own illegally or go to the Middle East or as construction workers or maids and have no one protecting them, you have a, the government actually helping, ascending government, protecting their migrants when they're abroad. So if they're in the Middle East in particular, the Philippines goes in and intervenes and tries to provide... Uh, protection uh, measures for their migrants abroad. And also the Philippine government licenses recruitment agencies because there's a lot of illegal you know, recruiters. You don't know who's, if you're gonna get the paid, what you're gonna be paid, what they say you're gonna pay in a contract. So they actually regulate that system, make it more easy. So I think the Philippines is a very interesting kind of deliberate from ascending government where they're trying to really help not only just regulate the system, but actually make it easier for migrants and protect them as nationals abroad. Real briefly, since you asked the literature question on this, I'd say there's a broader literature than that, that just the narrow question of government leaders changing, that it's the interjurisdictional co competition stuff. And the general thrust of most of that literature in the academics is how more jurisdictional competition improves the quality of governances in, in the various units, not so much on do leaders then thwart that competition when they're allowed to go somewhere else. I think there's less on that than the general stuff. Yes, my name is David Loria, and my question is this, is immigration has been... Keep it, can you keep the mic close to, the, to, close to you? Okay, so the immigration has been throughout American history, and opposition has at least bubbled up quite, I would say, quite often. Is the current opposition, I mean, is there... We heard about that overall immigration is beneficial, but are there groups or professions or maybe even geographic areas of the United States that are to some extent adversely impacted by immigration? Is there any basis at all, would you say that? I mean, there are obvious winners from immigration, but are there losers, so to speak? 
Thank you. Well, I think, and I'm not going to have a specific region that I can point to on this, but I think more generally, just like international trade, the thrust of the evidence is it's overall good for both societies, but that doesn't mean that there aren't losers in the short run while they transition at least. And then the secondary question is, are they geographically clustered the way we see in international trade flows? And potentially it could, but it doesn't strike me on low-skill immigration in particular that it's as much geographically clustered because so much of what they're doing is service industry. Uh, maybe you could think of some agricultural ones where you could do a displacement on it. It would be geographically clustered. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of different effects uh, about that. Uh, one of the things that we merely, uh, that we focus on, sort of in the show, so in the short run, like the Borjas findings that uh, Ben was talking about, you know, it's low-skilled Americans with less than a high school degree. Those workers who are most like the immigrants themselves are the ones who are most likely to suffer. So if you take a look at work by Ottaviano and Perry, what they find is actually the group that comp uh, competes the most with new immigrants are immigrants who came like 10 years ago because they have the most similar skills, the most similar language ability, similar sort of low levels of experience in the American economy. So when Giovanni and Perry sort of took that into account, uh, they found that low-skilled Americans, the same skill level as these immigrants, except they were native-born and spoke English, um, saw sm very small wage increases due to immigration. All of the wage competition, however, was born by immigrants who came 10 years ago. So that's the, one of the most interesting findings, I think. Last but not least, Mrs. Rendon. Hi, um, my name is Alexa Weaver Rendon. Uh, I am with the Institute for Humane Studies, and I'm an ex-Cato intern, full disclosure. Um, <laughs> my question is, um, as, as has been mentioned before today, despite the economic consensus, despite the facts, um, we still see this very... Uh, vocal anti-immigrant rhetoric and under the Obama administration we've seen the most deportations um, in the history of our country I believe um, and we just today we've seen a lot of uh, stepping up of the DHS of uh, raiding and deporting Central American um, citizens so since the facts are, are widely are not widely known um, and the rhetoric and it seems the deportation uh, trajectory is deteriorating. Um, what can be done to kind of halt this, to halt the, the mass deportations, to halt the, um, the system and kind of have a first step towards a more healthy and more just uh, immigration system? Well, I um, don't know if any of us are going to have a magic answer for you, but uh, as the egghead academic who put a book together, my, my kind of uh, path in life on this is what's important is circulating the ideas, uh, bo both getting the ideas right and then circulating them more in society, because if we don't do that, uh, then we'll never get there. But that is maybe a necessary but not sufficient condition, and I'm not sure I can give you a sufficient. Uh, I, I don't think I can give you a sufficient answer either, but I can give you reason to be hopeful about the near future. In 1993, Gallup has, Gallup has done a series of polls about what Americans think about immigration going back a while with three different questions. They asked, do you want more immigration, the same, or less immigration? In 1993, the poll said 6% of Americans wanted more immigration. Now that number is 25%. However, the number of people who wanted less legal immigration in 1993 was 66% of Americans. Now that's down to 34%. So uh, I think you have a quadrupling of support 
in the polit in po among voters for more legal immigration and a halving of, su of support for less legal immigration over time. The number of people who want it to be the same is about the same uh, as it was back then. So I think that is a, sh uh, uh, a huge change in politics. And I think what you see partly right now in the rhetoric and some of the policies being proposed by some uh, politicians, especially in their, uh, almost entirely in the Republican Party, is sort of a last, uh, is a gasp. Sort of a lot of people realizing that their preferred policy is not as popular as it used to be. And a lot of times in situations like that, people are louder about it. They become backed into a corner and they, you know, fight a little bit more ferociously. At least that's what we would expect. So I think that's part of what we're seeing right now is this reaction that times are changing, politics are changing, support amongst Americans is changing for this, and a lot of people are worried about it. Yeah, I think that, um, well, I'm not going to have an answer here as well. I think we have to wait. This is going to be a hard year, these elections. So mm -hmm. I think that that's, that's just the reality. So after the elections, I think after, um, there, and when we analyze what happens, who, who won, and why they won, and what demographic groups voted for them. I think that is the time when I think at the end of the year, beginning of next year, we will know what can be done next year, or in the, in the next decade, or next five years, the, the next presidency. Um, but it'll all depend on politics. Let's thank our panel for uh, such a wonderful discussion.